Welcome back to season two of Keeping Up with the Constitution, a podcast hosted by the University of Malaya Consti team, bringing you a simple dissection of the Malaysian Constitution. My name is Shamil Lionel, and I will be your host for today. So in our second episode today, we will be discussing on religious freedom in Malaysia. So if you remember back in primary and secondary school, Every week, we used to pledge the Rukun Negara during assembly, and the first principle was kepercayaan kepada Tuhan, or in English, belief in God, which was a pledge affirming us Malaysians to be committed to religion. However, till this day, many are still ignorant on the issues regarding religious freedom in Malaysia and how it actually works. So today with me, I have Katrine and Ezad, who are also from the UM Constitution family, and we will be discussing together further into this topic. Great to have you all here with me today. Thanks for having us, Sean. Yeah, thank you for having us, Sean. All right, so to start things off, there are actually three types of freedom of religion and which in the Constitution. What exactly are these three types of religious freedom, and are there any restrictions that come with them? Okay, uh, I think I'll start first. So there are actually three types of religious freedom in the federal constitution, enumerated specifically in Article 11, Clause 1, which are the freedom to profess, the freedom to practice, as well as the freedom of propagation. So I'll, uh, both of us will deal with this all together. So firstly, in regards to the freedom to profess a religion, we, this freedom actually deals with an internal element of the self as it actually closely relates to one's faith and the dogma one adheres to. That's absolutely right, Izzat. But the courts can't simply look into oneself to determine what religion a person professes. We can look at the case of Asbi Min Muhammad Azam, really heard in the Court of Appeal. The court defined the word profess to mean affirm or declare one's faith in or allegiance to a religion, a principle, a god, or even saints. So to profess a religion is to make a public statement about the religion you believe in. And as long as you affirmatively profess that you are in a religion, you then profess it. Yeah, um, when it comes to Islam in Malaysia, especially Muslims, uh, professing Islam comes with certain legal ramifications. It's not just about affirming one's faith or dogma or even allegiance, as what Kat said. So in Rasliza, the federal court held that once it is proven that a person professes Islam, it means that he or she is bound to the jurisdiction of the Sharia courts. And therefore, professing here means that there comes with certain legal objectives that one must follow when it comes to being a Muslim in Malaysia. The second type of freedom of religion that is guaranteed under the constitution is the freedom to practice your religion. Now, practicing deals with a more external element as it relates to your acts that are done out of the faith that you believe in. So in terms of practicing one's religion, this is not fully guaranteed as the integral tests must be applied to determine whether your religious practice would be protected under the freedom of religion. So if that act is integral to the religion, then the courts would protect it under the freedom of religion. The integral test deals with how integral the act is to your religion. I think the integral test can be best illustrated with the case of Mio Atikur Rahman decided in the federal court. And in this particular case, it was regarding a primary school student who wore a turban to school 
and was repeatedly advised to not to do so as it was against school regulations. It was against school rules, technically. So the appellants argued that wearing a turban or a serban is part of practicing one's religion, but, and then therefore challenged the constitutionality of the school regulations. And because of this, the court then used the integral test to determine whether wearing a serban or a turban is integral to Islam. <clears throat> so because due to in this test, the court looked at many different things to determine whether the practice was indeed integral to Islam. Some of the things were, for example, the history of wearing the turban in the Arabic states, to who wears the turban in Malaysia, even to the point that um, the appellants are merely boys and that the Sharia treats them differently compared to adults. But most importantly here, the court also looked at Islamic jurisprudence and whether wearing the turban was merely compuls- was a compulsory act within Islam or rather sunnah or commendable. And even within, within looking into the levels of commendableness, there was a lot of different levels to look into when it comes to Islamic jurisprudence. And these are, this shows that there is actually an inexhaustible list of how much we can look into when it comes to the integral test and whether an act actually equates to being integral to a particular religion. Another case that illustrates the integral test quite nicely would be the case of Halima Tusadia. This case discussed a woman who wore the Buddha, which is a veil that covers everything except the eyes. Now this veil posed problems as closing one's face could pose security concerns. The court held that freedom of religion to profess and practice does not include wearing the purda. And further, this freedom is not absolute as your freedom to profess and practice cannot be against any general law that relates to public order, public health, or morality. The final freedom that is enumerated under Article 11 is the freedom to propagate one's religion. And here, propagate would mean to spread beliefs from one person to another. Uh, on the outset, all religions have the right to propagate one's views to another, especially when it comes to proselytizing religions, where one of the essences of er- that particular religion is to gain and establish more followers by proselytizing to other individuals. This freedom is, however, subject to Article 11, Clause 4, where federal law is able to control the propagation of religious doctrines amongst Muslims, therefore restricting non-Muslims to preach their religion to Muslims and not the other way around. Now, on the outset, this article seems to raise tensions as there is some form of discrimination here. Why can Muslims proselytize but not non-Muslims? Prof Shad in his book, The Document of Destiny, stated that this clause must be perceived through its historical context. This clause was established to guard Muslims against the dominant proselytizing activities that the colonists of that time employed. And this even looked at how even in those times there was a Malay Muslim dominance. These proselytizing activities led to implications of social harmony as they were extremely coercive and posed a threat to the Muslim community back then. All in all, as much as freedom of religion can be seen as a non-derogable right, in Malaysia, it is clearly bound to some restrictions. In my opinion, if you were to look this matter at a, from a bird's eye view, everyone is still able to profess religions freely in Malaysia. I think that's not much problem with that. So far, I don't think I've heard the law protecting groups that proselytize others in coercion, right? 
However, what must be done is that due to our multicultural and also multi-religious society, such practices and also propagation must be subject to their respective safeguards to protect public order so that we are able to profess our respective religions in peace and also harmony. So coming from all those types of religious freedom given to us, as mentioned by both of y'all, many Malaysians are curious to know whether in the federal constitution, do our laws actually allow for the conversion out of Islam? As we hear so, so many cases pertaining to this issue. And also with that, do Shara courts have jurisdiction over persons who have converted out of Islam? Um, well, Sham, to answer your question, I think we have to go back to what professing Islam means. Uh, as mentioned before, this is not just about faith and dogma, but it's also about the legal ramifications that come with professing Islam, as well as in terms of Islamic law being imposed upon you. I think from then, we have to look at the extent of power the state legislature possesses. In the state list in the nine schedule, State legislatures are given the power to enact offenses for actions that are against the precepts of Islam. The precepts of Islam include things like Sharia, which is the law, Akida, which is faith, and Akhlaq, which is ethics. Now, according to the federal court in the case of Rosliza binti Ibrahim, regulations of apostasy is a matter of precepts of religion as it goes against one's Akida, which is faith. One cannot simply renounce the religion of Islam unilaterally, nor can the civil courts decide whether a person has renounced the religion of Islam. This method has to be left to the determination of the Sharia courts, who are the experts in Islamic jurisprudence and therefore are given the right to arbiter to determine one's legal persona when it comes to Islam. So as Kat mentioned, the power of the state legislature, legislature is already there. But then comes another question, right? Since the person who converted, who has already renunciated Islam, wouldn't that mean that that person no longer professes Islam anymore? And if that's the case, then wouldn't that mean that Sharia courts would not have jurisdiction over him as he's no longer a Muslim anymore? So because in this matter, we'd like to refer back to the case of Rosliza decided by the federal court where it looked into the person who has converted and the actual background of that particular individual. So what's important to note in, in Rosliza was that the court distinguished between no longer a Muslim and also never was a Muslim. So no longer a Muslim means that a person has professed Islam before. That person has followed the religion of Islam and there, then choose to depart from the religion of Islam. And in those particular cases where it deals with a person who is no longer a Muslim, the Sharia courts would still have the jurisdiction over the person as that person is legally still a Muslim. As Kat mentioned just now, you have to remember that one person cannot just renunciate Islam unitarily. It must be first recognized by religious authorities first, and then that person will be considered no longer a Muslim in the context of the law. However, the phrase, never was a Muslim, is entirely different. Looking at the case of Azmi, Elias Rooney Anat Rabbit, the court had to look at a person's original faith in determining matters of conversion. So in that particular case, the person or the appellant, Rooney Anat Rabbit in this case, was raised in a Bidaya Christian community. 
But unfortunately, it just so happened that his conversion was due to his parents who converted to Islam when he was a minor. So what the court did was it looked at the appellant's actual upbringing as a Bidayo Christian and held that he was never a Muslim to begin with because he never even engaged with the practice of Islam and therefore cannot be bound to the jurisdiction of the Sharia courts. I think Izar has illustrated that point quite illustratively. Uh, however, when discussing conversion, I think the question of atheism naturally arises as well. Now, atheism is not a new concept as this is propagated through many other societies and has actually been recognized as a actual uh, belief that one can profess, right? Because if we were to look at other jurisdictions, for example, Western liberal democracies, the right to religion as a whole generally includes the right to not believe any religion. Hence, atheism can exist. However, if we compare that to Malaysian society, the context in which this exists is extremely different as religion in other democracies, Western liberal democracies are almost entirely outside of the public sphere of nations. Things are very different here. So if we were to look at the Rukun Nagara, which are the five natural principles that all Malaysians must adhere to, the belief in God is illustrated as the first principle. And if we were to look at other things, such as the issue of the mandatory application of the Shari Kod's jurisdiction onto Muslims, who are unlikely to allow for conversion out of Islam, this poses an issue, especially for the Muslim community, for individuals that want to profess atheism but are unable to do so. Yes, what Kat said is actually true, and I actually agree to it. However, we also have to concede that there is an opposing side to his argument. And in his argument, it states that according to Article 5, which provides for the right to life and liberty, also includes the right to not believe in a religion. And therefore, there are also differing views on an atheism as a concept, right? So atheism itself confirms the lack of belief in a god but not exactly lack of belief in a religion. Non, for example, just to illustrate this point, non-theistic religions such as Buddhism or Confucianism organize the religion around a prescribed way of life rather than belief in a god. So it is very different from how the Rukum Nagara operates, which is about a belief in a god. And on that point as well, the Rukum Nagara itself is not the constitution, right? But, and it's also not really illegal to go against it. Hence, how we can look at atheism as a whole is that it is not actually outlawed, but rather not recognized in Malaysia, as things do get to be awkward when you're filling out official forms or providing information for identity card, which requires identification of religion, right? Um, normally, when you're given such um, official forms, you will need to fill out your religion anyway. It is very, I would say, out of bounds or very, quite awkward for you to just put to put there atheist, for example, right? Right, is that so? On the topic of Islam, also, Article 3 1 of the Constitution has expressly stated that Islam is recognized as the official religion of Malaysia. And over the decades, this particular provision has sparked many, many debates on whether Malaysia is a secular or theocratic state. So what are your views and thoughts on this matter? I think pertaining the discussion of Islam and the constitution and the country, there are two parts to this, right? The first would be 
the formation of the constitution and what the drafters of the constitution intended, as well as secondly, the later years of Malaysia and how that has shifted entirely. So firstly, on the intention of the drafters of the constitution when making Article 3, the Reed Commission was birthed after an agreement to make a Commonwealth Constitutional Commission and function to make recommendations for a constitution. The commission made their official recommendation of the matter of religion, stating that the official religion of the Federation of Malaya should be Islam. A further uh, recommendation, including the working committee, was imported to examine the Reed Commission's report, which included representatives of the Malay rulers of Malaya and the alliance as a whole. The committee made a significant change to this recommendation, namely that Islam was to be the religion of the Federation, but other communities were guaranteed the full freedom to practice their own religions. So actually in the beginning stages of the Federation, the drafters of the constitution, both the Reed Commission as well as the Working Committee, clearly intended for Islam to be the official religion, as, as we can see in Article 3. But the fiat was that the nation was to be secular and everyone had a right to their own religion. Article 3, Clause 4 itself provides that nothing in Article 3 derogates from any other provision of the constitution. Later on, in, when Malaysia was formed, the Cobalt Commission, a British-Malayan commission, espoused the same view that Islam would be the official religion, but the nation, in effect, was to be secular. As you can see in the case of Che Omar Chekso and private prosecutor, heard in the Supreme Court, the then Lord President Tun Sari Abbas held that Islam in Article 3, Clause 1, is confined to only personal law. Although Islam is the fed law of the Federation, it is not the basic law of the land. Therefore, if you were to follow any broader interpretation of Article 3, Clause 1, it would be in conflict with Article 3, Clause 4, as Article 3, Clause 1 must be read subject to other provisions within the constitution. So the second thing to discuss in regards to Islam and the official religion of Malaysia would be the shift of the nation's public sphere. Politicians claim that Malaysia is an Islamic state. And I don't think these claims are entirely baseless either. Because if you think about it, right, what country actually adopts, promotes and affords multiple protections to one religion over many others and can still in the same breath call itself secular, right? So to analyze this, I think we can look at a few features of the constitution that are inherently not secular in nature. Article 12, Clause 2 provides for the establishment of Islamic institutions. Article 121, Clause 1A provides for the establishment of Sharia courts of which their jurisdiction is inherently protected against the interference of other civil courts. And lastly, Individual states under the state list in the ninth schedule are permitted to enforce Islamic laws and morality, such as in the areas of Islamic criminal laws and offenses. There are many such features in the constitution that are inherently not secular in nature. Yes, um, even if you were to take a look away from the constitution and look into society of Malaysia itself, we can actually see many features resembling an Islamic state. For example, Islamic institutions, Islamic banking and finance, and also the normalization of Islamic practices 
in various mediums, such as in the media. So heeding the wise words of Professor Shad, the natural conclusion to draw is that Malaysia is a hybrid of a secular as well as a theocratic state. The balance is one that walks the razor-thin line of competing interests in a multi-ethnic society. So basically a two-in-one. So coming down to another hot issue on religious freedom, which is parental conversion, do all minors under the age of majority automatically follow their parents' religions when they convert? The main authority for the questions of minors and religion would be the case of Tio Eng Huat, or maybe called the Suzy Tio case, where the issue at hand was regarding a 17-year-old girl who wanted to convert to Islam. The learned judge in that case held that under Article 12, Clause 3, the religion of a minor who is one who is under the age of 18 is to be determined by the parent or the guardian. The infant in that case had no constitutional right to convert as it was against their parents' wishes. Actually, this view is in accordance with Article 18, Clause 4 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, 1966, or as we call it, the ICCPR which states that parents or even legal guardians have the liberty to ensure that the religious and moral education their children receives is in line with their beliefs. Now, stepping away from this perspective and uh, like taking a more wider approach, right? I think minors are generally subject to more restrictions on certain rights up until they reach adulthood. This looks like minors not being able to purchase alcohol or tobacco or minors not being allowed to drive, right? The view is always that minors have not reached the necessary maturity to make such decisions, especially if decisions are permanent and have long-lasting implications on their life. I think this same principle can be applied for religion, where the decision to convert perhaps takes a certain level of maturity and understanding that minors necessarily don't have, right? Minors are also susceptible to persuasion, which may influence their decision to convert, thus making their decision to convert out of religion to another may not entirely be their decision. However, the opposing view to this is that minors, especially older ones around the ages of 16 to 17, probably do have the mental capacity to understand the inclinations of their religious beliefs and convert if need be, right? And it is generally unfair to deprive minors who are mature enough to understand that they want to profess a different religion to deprive them of doing so. Maybe the solution would be to educate and decide on a case-by-case basis, given that it is unfair to deprive minors of their right to convert, especially if they are actually mature enough to understand the implications of their own decision. With that, we have reached the end of our episode. Thank you so much, Katrin and Izzat, for spending your time to be with us today. Thank you for, so much for having us, Sharma. I think this was a very interesting discussion and really challenged Izzat and I to think of this from a different perspective. Yes, I actually feel the same way as well. I think there was a lot of things that was touched in this discussion that can be used for the benefit of others as well. So for the audience, we hope you enjoyed our discussion of religious freedom in Malaysia. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you wish to read more on this topic, the UM Consti team has covered them in great detail in one of our previous law series, which can be found on our website.
To catch up UM Consti team's latest activities, do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at UM Consti team. Thank you and do stick around for the next episode.